Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast discusses cases in which a crime may have occurred. It's important to advise that all parties mentioned or generally referred to in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty by law. Opinions and viewpoints expressed on this podcast don't necessarily reflect those of the podcast host, Murderish, or Cloud10. This episode of Dirty Money Moves discusses sexual abuse involving a minor as well as suicide, although we don't go into detail on either subject. Listener discretion is advised. If this is your first time tuning into the podcast, please stop here and listen to episodes one and two first. Everything will make much more sense if you start from the beginning. In the last episode, episode two, we left off with Mary Carroll being put on blast by Channel 2 News. Her company, Bellum Entertainment, and the production empire she worked to build over the previous 13 years began to crumble. The downfall came as a result of Bellum Entertainment failing to pay people who'd worked for the company, and several lawsuits leveled against Mary Carroll for fraud and breach of contract. Also in last week's episode, we talked about the creative investment or gifting programs Mary Carroll used to entice unsuspecting people into giving her money, and how she failed to pay when the notes came due. By 2017, with her business crumbling, Mary Carroll owed individuals and institutions millions of dollars. But in the face of mounting lawsuits and creditors breathing down her neck, Mary Carroll didn't seem to flinch. Instead, she got together with one of her lawyers, Barry Rothman, and worked out a plan to get even more cash. And this time around, Mary Carroll was going big. Mary Carroll's attorney, Barry Rothman, had a reputation around Hollywood and the entertainment industry. People described him as ruthless and money-hungry. Barry had represented big-name celebrities before, and he even had ties to Michael Jackson and one of Hollywood's most infamous scandals. So how exactly does this colorful character fit into Mary Carroll's story and her white-collar hustle? As it turned out, Barry may very well have been critical to Mary Carroll's ability to pull off the biggest money grab of her life. In this episode, we're diving into Mary Carroll's sidekick, Barry Rothman, a man with a big, albeit questionable, reputation. And by the time Mary Carroll likely began enjoying the $14 million she got from Bank of California, Barry dropped dead under bizarre circumstances. From Murderish and Cloud 10 Media, this is Dirty Money Moves Women in White Collar Crime, a podcast that dives into one story told over several weekly episodes. In season one, 
I'm taking you along as I look into Mary Carol McDonnell, a self-proclaimed heiress who seemed to have it all. Money, a successful business, expensive homes and cars. But all the lies, including the one about her being an heiress, were eventually exposed in a major way, bringing down her television production empire. But that was not the end of the story. This is episode three, The Nastiest Son of a Bitch. Barry Kenneth Rothman was born on June 12, 1942, in New York City, New York. He arrived 10 minutes before his twin brother, J. Stuart Rothman. Barry's parents were Alexander Rothman, whose family came to America from Poland in the early 1900s, and Lillian Liblin, whose family came to America from Austria just prior to 1900. The Rothman family lived in the Bronx, not far from Yankee Stadium, and no doubt rooted for the Bronx Bombers, like most New Yorkers from the area. Early on in Barry's life, he got his first taste of being involved in a history-making moment. In March of 1947, New York City experienced an outbreak of smallpox, resulting in the largest mass vaccination effort ever undertaken for smallpox in America. A large amount of vaccines were procured in rapid speed, and within three weeks of discovering the outbreak, over six million adults and children were vaccinated. Many people credit the quick response for limiting the outbreak to just 12 people and only two deaths. Coincidentally, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the current director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, whose name has become synonymous with the COVID-19 pandemic, is from Brooklyn and was six years old at the time of the smallpox outbreak. Dr. Fauci was vaccinated at that young age, so there's a good chance that four-year-old Barry was also vaccinated in the record-breaking rush to stop the spread of smallpox along with the rest of his family. In 1957, Alexander and Lillian moved their family across the country to Los Angeles. They also had a third child, Richard. Records were difficult to find, but Richard was either born before the Rothmans left New York or shortly after they arrived in California. Barry graduated from Reseda High School in 1960, then went on to UCLA where he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration in 1965. He then attended Southwestern University School of Law where he graduated with a Juris Doctor degree in 1969. Barry passed the California bar exam the following year in 1970. Interestingly, Barry's twin brother, Jay, also received a JD degree from Southwestern University and passed his California bar exam in 1971. Jay eventually established his own law firm, J.S. Rothman & Associates, specializing in employment law. After passing the bar, Barry went to work as corporate counsel for Warner Brothers Records. In 1973, he left Warner Brothers to join the music department of Wyman, Botzer, Rothman, and Kuchel. Eventually, he opened his own law firm, the law offices of Barry K. Rothman, a general practice law firm with an emphasis on entertainment law and business contracts. His most recent law offices 
were located on Avenue of the Stars in Century City, California. Over the 48 total years that he practiced law, Barry represented hugely popular musicians, such as Little Richard, The Rolling Stones, The Who, and Ozzy Osbourne. The walls of Barry's office were decorated with numerous gold and platinum records to commemorate these notable business relationships. He also represented many actors, actresses, and models, including Yolanda Hadid, who found more recent popularity for her role on the popular reality TV show, The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I'm not gonna lie, I've watched every season of The Real Housewives. I am a huge fan of the show. But anyway, Barry was also the agent of service on dozens of corporations and LLCs. Throughout his career, Barry developed a reputation as a ferocious ally to his clients and was well-known within the entertainment industry. However, well-known doesn't necessarily translate to well-liked or well-respected. We're going to take a quick break here, but don't go anywhere because I'm about to tell you all about Barry Rothman, his snazzy Rolls-Royce, impressive money-dodging skills, and how he managed to maintain a California tan year-round. I thought I knew my mom well, until my family and I were enjoying Thanksgiving dinner, and she proceeded to tell us how she and my dad used to get groceries back in the day. They were broke and only had a Harley-Davidson motorcycle to get around on. So, when they needed groceries, my mom got on the back of my dad's Harley and she'd carry two bags full of groceries in her arms on the ride home. And this is the precise moment I stopped complaining about the seat warmers in my car not heating up fast enough because first world problems, right? I figure my mom probably has tons of cool stories like the Harley-Davidson one, so StoryWorth would be a perfect gift for her. StoryWorth is an online service that compiles all of your mother figure's stories over the course of a year and presents them in a beautiful keepsake book. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your mother figure a thought-provoking question like, what's some of the best advice your mom gave you? Or, how'd you balance eggs on the back of dad's bike? I mean, seriously, how the heck did she pull that off? Anyway, after a year, you'll have a keepsake containing so many of your mother figure's stories, along with photos for you and the fam to enjoy for years. Give all the moms in your life a meaningful gift you'll both cherish for years, story worth. Right now, for a limited time, you'll save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash dirty money. That's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash dirty money to save $10 on your first purchase, storyworth.com slash dirty money. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In July of 1979, 
Barry married Joanne Ward, and four months later, on November 22nd, their son Joshua was born. But the marriage was short-lived. They were divorced by 1983. After the divorce, the true nature of how Barry operated and what he'd been doing behind the scenes began to come to the surface. Over the years, Barry had amassed some wealth, and his lifestyle was evidence of that. He owned an expensive home in an upscale area of Sherman Oaks. His 1977 Rolls-Royce Corniche had a vanity license plate that read BKR1. It was his most prized possession. In the 1980s, a decade known for big hair, neon, and excess, the Rolls-Royce Corniche was what you drove if you wanted to display your importance, style, and sophistication. The flashy car was, and still is, considered to be a Rolls-Royce icon. Celebrities like Zsa Zsa Gabor, Frank Sinatra, and Michael Caine all owned the Corniche. In addition to the fancy home and iconic car, Barry also had a tanning bed in his home, which kept him California tan all year round. One former client said that Barry reminded him of a leprechaun, with his white beard and often orange-hued tan. I've seen photos, and I'd say that description is pretty dead on. According to the book Untouchable, The Strange Life and Tragic Death of Michael Jackson by Randall Sullivan, once Joanne and Barry were divorced, Joanne told her attorney she was shocked that someone hadn't killed Barry by then because he'd made so many enemies over the years. Apparently, a lot of people despised him. One former employee called Barry a real-life demon straight out of the pits of hell. According to Sullivan, Barry went through office staff at an astounding rate and was notorious for verbally abusing the women he hired and for failing to pay their salaries. He'd run them out of the office, cursing them as idiots as they fled from his presence in tears. According to journalist Mary Fisher, when she was researching Barry for an article, many of his former clients, associates, and employees provided information about him that revealed a pattern of manipulation and deceit. Fisher's findings were published in a 1994 article in GQ magazine entitled, Was Michael Jackson Framed? The Untold Story. According to that GQ article, Barry was accused of not paying his employees, many of whom had to beg for their paychecks. Often, the checks that were issued would bounce. Sound familiar? Seems like Barry and Mary Carroll were destined to link up at some point in life. On many occasions, Barry also refused to pay the temp agencies for the workers he'd run out of the office, telling the agencies that he was dissatisfied with their performance. According to Fisher, some agencies finally got wise and made Barry pay cash up front before they'd do business with him. Barry was also accused by at least one client of padding his bills. By 1987, Barry found himself nearly $17,000 behind in alimony and child support payments to his ex-wife. According to the GQ article, Joanne's lawyer had to threaten to go after Barry's assets in order to motivate him to pay up. But a year later, 
Barry still had not made any payments to Joanne. So her lawyer tried to put a lien on his Sherman Oaks home. What the lawyer discovered was a surprise. Apparently, Barry no longer owned the home he lived in. Three years earlier, he deeded the property to a company called Tanoa Operations, Inc. According to Joanne's lawyer, Barry told him that he'd been storing $200,000 of Tanoa's money in cash inside of his home safe. Barry said that one night, he was robbed at gunpoint and all of Tanoa's money was taken from his safe. Barry told the lawyer that he had to deed his house to Tanoa in order to make good on the $200,000 loss. Though Joanne and her lawyer were unable to prove it, they believed Barry made the whole story up. Knowing Barry, the sensational story likely had something to do with the scheme for him to hold on to his assets. Although he'd managed to dodge consequences many times before, one thing Barry could not prevent was the impounding of his precious Rolls Royce. Once he saw it being hauled away, the child support and alimony payments suddenly came rolling in. Later, according to Fisher's article, documents filed with the Los Angeles Superior Court showed that Barry had created an elaborate and complex network of foreign bank accounts and shell companies. Shell companies are business entities without active business operations or significant assets, essentially hollow on the inside. There are legal reasons to have a shell company, such as a business startup or to use the company to raise funds, or to use it as a tax haven abroad. Offshore companies allow individuals or large corporations to legally take advantage of looser tax codes. However, there are also many illegal reasons to have a shell company, such as tax evasion, money laundering, or using the company to hide assets. Tax evasion happens when earnings are funneled through a shell company in such a way that they aren't counted toward personal income, thereby decreasing or eliminating tax obligations. Money laundering involves storing money from illegal operations, such as a Ponzi scheme, in the shell company so as to hide the origin of the money. We've all seen this play out in almost every mob movie because they take in so much cash from illegal operations. Barry allegedly used his shell companies in part to conceal some of his assets, including his home and most of the $531,000 from its eventual sale in 1989. Barry's shell companies included Tanoa Operations, Longridge Estates Inc., Manley Holdings LTD, and Maho Inc. According to court documents, Barry even bought a Panamanian shelf company which is an existing shell company that's not in use and set up so that he would have unconditional power of attorney without appearing on its list of officers. This would theoretically allow Barry to anonymously control the money moving in and out of the shell company. In 2016, a massive leak of confidential documents belonging to a Panama-based law firm called Masek Fonseca was released by a German newspaper. The collection of leaked documents was dubbed the Panama Papers. 
Mossack Fonseca was the fourth largest offshore law firm in the world at the time. So the story was big. The Panama Papers exposed a network of more than 214,000 tax havens involving entities and individuals from 200 different nations. The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ, spent a year deciphering the encrypted files and then made their findings public. The majority of leaked documents showed no illegal actions, but some of the shell companies set up by Mossack Fonseca had been used for fraud, tax evasion, or to avoid international sanctions. Barry's shell company, Manley Holdings LTD, is listed in the Panama Papers, and Barry's name is attached as shareholder. Side note, out of all of Barry's shell companies, this one should be exposed just for the douchey name alone. But I digress. Manley Holdings is registered in the Bahamas and the company's agent was Mossack Fonseca. You can find this information on ICIJ's website. The 2019 movie, The Laundromat, starring Meryl Streep, is based on the book, Secrecy World, written by Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Jake Bernstein, which is about the Panama Papers scandal. In addition to shell companies, Barry was also the CEO or sole manager for several other businesses, Barry K. Rothman, a professional corporation, and Barry K. Rothman, a PC, which directly related to his law firms. He's also named on Alibar LLC, Unique Management Inc., Unique Management LLC, and Donegal Farms Inc. It's unknown what type of businesses these were, though according to court documents from 2018, Alibar was a holding company that Barry used as a pass-through mechanism to conduct personal and business financial affairs. Unique Management Inc. was incorporated in 1994, and Unique Management LLC was formed in 2011. Donegal Farms Inc. was incorporated in 1995. Barry's business practices and financial management systems were complex to say the least, much like Mary Carroll's. Both of them had a slew of LLCs and moved money around like it was a sport. Ed Marcus was an investigator for one of the many lawsuits filed against Barry in the Los Angeles Superior Court prior to 1994. Marcus said in his court reports that Barry appeared to be a professional deadbeat paying almost no one. Marcus had reviewed Barry's credit history at the time and found more than 30 creditors and judgment holders had been vigorously pursuing him. One creditor, Fulb Management, a corporate real estate agency, was owed $53,000 in back rent for one of Barry's offices on Sunset Boulevard. The company filed a lawsuit against him, and Barry reacted with one of his signature moves. He filed a countersuit and made accusations against Fulb. According to journalist Mary Fisher, Fulb's attorney told the court Mr. Rothman is not the kind of person whose word can be taken at face value. 
Investigator Marcus also discovered that more than 20 civil lawsuits had been filed against Barry. In addition, there were numerous complaints to the Labor Commission about Barry, which caused the State Bar of California to take disciplinary action against him for three incidents. But Barry always seemed to avoid serious punishment. In 1992, Barry's law license was suspended for a year because he allegedly ignored conflict of interest rules, though he managed to have the suspension drop down to a short probation instead. And then, poof, Barry was back in business. In November of 1992, right after his probation ended, Barry's law firm filed for bankruptcy. The documents listed 13 creditors, including Fulb Management, with a total debt of $880,000. And even though he owned the Rolls-Royce at the time, Barry's bankruptcy documents listed zero assets. Prior to filing BK, Barry had transferred the title on the Rolls-Royce to Maho, one of his shell companies, thereby eliminating it from his name. It's interesting to note that in 1989, the Rolls-Royce had a different owner listed, Longridge Estates, which was a subsidiary of Tanoa Operations, Inc. The documents for both Longridge and Tanoa listed the business address as 1554 Cahuenga Boulevard in Los Angeles, which happened to be the address of a Chinese restaurant in Hollywood. The complicated laundry list of business entities and ownership transfers seemed to all be part of Barry's usual tricks to hide assets and dodge financial responsibility. According to Mary Fisher's 1994 GQ article, a former client of Barry's reviewed his bankruptcy paperwork. Barry happened to be suing this particular client for $400,000 in legal fees at the time. So the client dug deeper into Barry's financial doings. In reviewing Barry's bankruptcy documents, the former client noticed that Barry had failed to list a $133,000 asset in his BK filing. So the former client threatened to expose him for defrauding his creditors unless Barry dropped his lawsuit. Apparently, Barry dismissed the lawsuit against his former client very quickly after that, perhaps unwilling to take the chance of catching felony charges. It's not known what the missing asset was. Apparently, staying nice and tan was not the only way Barry kept up on his appearance. During the years prior to the bankruptcy, Barry allegedly had numerous hair transplants, which were performed by a San Diego doctor named James DeYarman. According to Dr. DeYarman, unlike most hair transplants, which don't require full anesthesia, Barry was so afraid of the pain that he insisted on being put out completely. Dr. DeYarman worked with an anesthesiologist named Mark Torbiner. Unbeknownst to Dr. DeYarman, Torbiner was not a medical doctor. He was a dental anesthesiologist 
who padded his income by working outside the scope of his license, administering drugs for procedures that had nothing to do with dental work. This was how Torbiner came to know Barry Rothman. He provided anesthesia on at least eight of Barry's hair transplants. Torbiner also did work for a Beverly Hills dentist named Evan Chandler. In 1991, Torbiner introduced the two men, and Evan became Barry's dentist. Two short years later, Barry would become Evan's lawyer for one of the biggest scandals in American history, involving Evan's son and Michael Jackson. After this quick break, I'm going to connect the dots between a Beverly Hills dental practice, hair plugs, Barry Rothman, and Michael Jackson. Strange, I know, but stay with me, guys. Evan Chandler and his ex-wife, June Chandler Schwartz, had a son named Jordan. Everyone called him Jordy. In May of 1992, 12-year-old Jordy met pop icon Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's car had broken down on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. Jordy's stepfather, David Schwartz, owned a car rental agency nearby called Rent-A-Rec. Jackson was brought there by an employee whose wife had spotted the King of Pop on the side of the road. When David heard that Michael Jackson was on his way to the shop, he called his wife June right away. David's stepson, Jordy, was a huge Michael Jackson fan. So David told June to bring him and their six-year-old daughter, Lily, down to the shop to meet the pop star. After the meeting, Michael Jackson began calling Jordy regularly, and a friendship developed. June, who had custody of Jordy, and her children became regular guests at Neverland Ranch, Jackson's 2,700-acre private ranch in Los Olivos, California, in Santa Barbara County. Jackson named the ranch after the imaginary land from the Peter Pan story, where children did not have to grow up. The sprawling ranch had amusement park rides, a zoo, a pool, a large pond, basketball and tennis courts, and a train that went around the entire property. The ranch also had a 13,000-square-foot main house, as well as 20 other structures, including multiple guest houses and a 50-seat movie theater. Jackson quickly became like a member of the family, and both June and Evan, Jordy's dad, called him a friend. The entire family was smitten, as you can imagine. Evan Chandler was from the Bronx, just like Barry. He'd become a dentist mostly because it was a family tradition, though his first love was writing. In the late 1970s, he moved to Los Angeles with his then-wife, June, who gave birth to Jordy in 1980. Eventually, Evan grew his business into a successful Beverly Hills dental practice. In 1992, around the time that Jordy met Michael Jackson, 
Evans' writing dreams came true when he co-wrote the Mel Brooks film Robin Hood Men in Tights. But the success was short-lived, no other screenwriting gigs came his way, and by June of 1993, even with a successful Beverly Hills dental practice, Evan fell nearly $70,000 behind on child support payments, another thing he and Barry had in common. Meanwhile, by March of 1993, Jordy and Michael Jackson had been having regular sleepovers at Neverland Ranch, as well as at June's and Evan's house, with Jordy and Jackson sleeping in the same bed. According to Ray Chandler, Jordy's uncle, both June and Evan each caught Michael Jackson snuggling up to Jordy on separate occasions while in bed together. Though Jackson swore that nothing sexual was going on, Evan grew increasingly distrustful of the singer's actions. On May 3rd of 1993, Evan brought Jordy to his dental practice to pull one of his teeth. Barry's hair transplant friend, Mark Torbiner, was there to administer anesthesia, giving the boy sodium amytal, a controversial drug commonly used in amnesia patients and less commonly used for dental work. While under the influence of the drug, Jordy allegedly spoke up about Jackson having sexually abused him numerous times. According to Evan's brother, Ray, it was after that revelation that Evan mentioned the whole thing to Barry during one of his dental appointments. After learning about the alleged abuse, Barry offered to represent Evan and Jordy for free. But the timing of Jordy's supposed confession seemed suspicious. According to numerous sources, including Sullivan's book and Fisher's GQ article, Evan only sought out Barry's legal services when Michael Jackson stopped calling and interacting with him. The insinuation was that Michael Jackson had ghosted Evan and he was not happy about it. David Schwartz, Jordy's stepfather, secretly recorded a phone conversation between him and Evan, where Evan spoke about his concern for Jordy and focused his anger at Jackson for distancing himself from Evan and breaking up the family. In the recorded conversation, Evan also excitedly talks about Barry, telling his son's stepfather that Barry Rothman was the nastiest son of a bitch he could find. This attorney I found, I mean, I interviewed several, and I picked the nastiest son of a bitch I could find. Once I make that phone call, this guy is just going to destroy everybody in sight in any devious, nasty, cruel way that he can do it. And I've given him full authority to do that. It'll be a, a massacre if I don't get what I want. Evan went on to say that Barry was mean, very smart, and hungry for publicity. Remember, this would have been about six months after Barry's law firm filed for bankruptcy. So it makes sense that he wanted a big case to help his firm recover. The recorded conversation also alluded to plans that had been set in motion to destroy Michael Jackson's career and for Evan to get custody of Jordy. 
The two months that followed that recorded conversation were a whirlwind of accusations and questionable moves made by Barry and by Jackson's lawyers and private investigator. Barry would find himself at war with arguably one of the biggest celebrities in the world. The exact dealings of Barry and Evan and their motives are still hotly debated today. Although the main issue at hand was the alleged sexual abuse of a child, Evan and Barry did not take their concerns to law enforcement. Instead, Evan threatened to go public with the information he had on Michael Jackson, while Barry drew up documents to have temporary custody of Jordy given to Evan to prevent the boy from going on a world tour with Michael Jackson. A bitter custody battle between Jordy's parents ensued, and it lasted for years. During the Michael Jackson drama, Barry reached out to a psychiatrist named Dr. Mathis Abrams and gave him a hypothetical situation. The hypothetical that Barry laid out followed what Jordy allegedly said Michael Jackson had done to him, but Barry held back on naming the alleged perpetrator. In response, Dr. Abrams sent Barry a letter on July 15, 1993, that stated the hypothetical scenario presented to him would require him to notify LA County Department of Children's Services, or DCS, if the scenario was real. On August 4th, Evan and Jordy met with Michael Jackson and his private investigator, Anthony Pelicano, who'd already heard the recorded conversation between Evan and David Schwartz. During the meeting, Evan handed over the letter from Dr. Abrams to bolster his claims of abuse and the outcome if he came forward with allegations. According to Pelicano, he and Barry met later that same night, and Barry demanded $20 million from Michael Jackson. Knowing what was said on the recorded phone call, Pelicano immediately accused Evan and Barry of extortion. On August 13th, Pelicano spoke to Barry and gave a counteroffer of $350,000. To sweeten the deal, Pelicano also offered a screenwriting deal with Jackson. The private investigator claimed the offer was a means to resolve the custody dispute and not an admission of guilt on behalf of Michael Jackson. Barry responded by making a counter-demand of three screenplays, which Pelicano promptly rejected. Barry then instructed Evan to take Jordy to Dr. Abrams, who interviewed the boy for three hours. During the meeting, Jordy alleged that Michael Jackson had engaged in a sexual relationship with him for some time, and he provided graphic details of sexual acts. Dr. Abrams reported the accusations to the DCS, who then notified law enforcement, marking the end of keeping the whole ordeal under wraps. An investigation ensued, which was leaked to the press. Five days after police were notified, the story began appearing on TV media outlets. Over the next several months, lawyers for both sides were hired and fired as legal strategies were argued and a media frenzy exploded. 
In late August, Barry stepped down as Evans' lawyer after Michael Jackson's lawyers filed extortion charges against both men and a criminal investigation began. Barry and Evan each hired high-priced criminal attorneys. Barry retained Robert Shapiro, who would become famous for representing O.J. Simpson the next year. That marked the end of Barry's involvement in the sexual abuse case. Coincidentally, Michael Jackson's team would bring in attorney Johnny Cochran Jr., who also went on to defend O.J. Simpson. Ultimately, Jackson was not indicted on criminal charges related to Jordy, although he would face a child abuse trial in 2005 stemming from sexual allegations from a different child. Jackson was found innocent at that trial. It's interesting to note that one of the witnesses for the prosecution in Jackson's trial was Jim Clemente, the former FBI agent who was also a technical advisor for many of Mary Carroll's true crime TV shows. Although he didn't end up taking the stand, Clemente was going to testify as an expert on child sexual victimization. In January of 94, the extortion charges against Barry and Evan were dropped one day before Jackson and his insurance company agreed to pay out over $20 million on a claim of negligence, not molestation. $15.3 million went to Jordy. Evan and June each got $1.5 million, and more than $3 million in attorney fees were paid out. None of the money went to Barry. The civil lawsuit against Jackson was subsequently dropped by the Chandler family. But Barry was not about to take this quietly. In August of 1994, he filed a civil lawsuit against Michael Jackson and his original legal team claiming defamation, slander, and intentional infliction of emotional distress as a result of their extortion allegations against him. The lawsuit was ultimately dismissed in 1998 after several appeals on both sides. The Chandler family was never the same after the ordeal. Jordy emancipated from his parents when he was 16 and moved to New York to try to get away from everything. He eventually moved to California to try his hand in music. Evan Chandler left dentistry in 1994 after he became one of the most hated men in America. He received constant death threats from Michael Jackson supporters, so much so that he became paranoid, frequently changing his address and transforming his appearance with plastic surgery. He even bought a gun for protection. By 2009, Evan was in a lot of pain due to an incurable genetic illness called Gaucher's disease. The painful illness caused Evan to spiral into mental and physical decline. On November 5, 2009, Evan Chandler shot himself in the head 
and died in the New York apartment he once shared with his son. Evans' death came less than three months after Michael Jackson died of a cardiac arrest due to a propofol overdose, which was administered by his doctor, Conrad Murray. Court documents filed in L.A. Superior Court in 2018 state that Barry Rothman had been Mary Carol McDonald's attorney for over 20 years. If this is true, then they knew each other and began working together right around the time Barry's defamation suit against Michael Jackson was dismissed. At the time he and Mary Carol connected, Barry was only a few years removed from one of the most widely publicized scandals of all time. Barry was still a well-known name, but he needed more clients. Around this time, Mary Carroll was somewhere between being unemployed and starting as the executive VP of programming for Raycom Media in 1999. Mary Carroll likely needed a skilled and experienced lawyer like Barry for her big future plans, someone who knew business contract law and who had extensive knowledge of Hollywood. They were a perfect fit and probably came to know each other very well over the course of two decades. It's no wonder that Mary Carroll enlisted Barry's help when she found herself in financial ruin in 2017 after Bellum Entertainment collapsed. She needed money, a lot of it, and she needed it fast. So, in December of 2017, Barry Rothman came to his longtime client's rescue. He used his connections with Bank of California, a prominent business bank in downtown Los Angeles, to set up a meeting for Mary Carroll. As representatives from Bank of California walked into Barry's offices in Century City, they may have been curious going into it, knowing they were about to meet an heiress. Barry had made bank reps well aware of Mary Carroll's stature before the meeting took place. Regardless of Barry's client's stature, bank reps were no doubt eager to learn whether this meeting could lead to a significant new banking relationship because Mary Carroll was worth millions. Or so they thought. Next time on Dirty Money Moves Women in White Collar Crime, Mary Carroll bakes homemade pies for Bank of California employees as she and Barry pull off an elaborate $15 million money grab right under their noses. Next thing they know, Mary Carroll disappears faster than her homemade pies and Barry Rothman is dead. I had a chance to kind of look her up and down and like, yeah, this chick looks rich as fuck. She's the heiress. She is rich. She probably smelled rich. She absolutely looked the part. She had the balls, the audacity to bring us homemade fucking pies. She like what kind of sociopath? If Barry hadn't died, what would this case look like today? 
Dirty Money Moves is a collaboration between Murderish and Cloud10 Media. Executive producers are myself, Jamie Rice, and Sim Sarna. Research and writing is done by Gina Mazzolini. Matt Provenzano does the audio mixing and editing. Josh Cook composed the music, and Brian Stefanik created the podcast cover art. Follow us at Dirty Money Moves on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And if you like the show, please rate us, review us, and leave us a few stars at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. If you're into true crime content, check out my other podcast, Murderish. A list of sources used for this episode is available at Murderish.com. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week for a brand new episode. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.